0: Welcome to Maven in America. I'm the May from the title and I'm in America, also from the title. This podcast is about the American immigrant experience, where I find out what happens when you leave your life behind to move far away and start a new one. This show is immigration stories told by the people who've lived them.
1: You pick your battle. Some, you just let it go. So you, you get rid of a lot of stuff that crowds your brain and you focus. When I get mad, you don't want to come near me. (laughs) And I don't have time to waste.
0: That was our first guest, an octogenarian Chinese-American activist, grandmother to a thousand girls. She is amazing, and she is coming right up. Every episode, you see we feature one person, one immigrant story, and I should probably fill you in on mine. I moved here hoping to become America's answer to Rihanna. But I quickly discovered that Rihanna is America's answer to Rihanna. That's my struggle. But I had to pick up the pieces and think of something else to do. And that is how I became the first comedian in the world ever to have their own podcast. I want to tell you that this show is primarily personal, not political. But of course, at times the two are bound together. This is one of those times. Immigration is a loaded word, and recently the conversation has gotten pretty loud. These people come across the border. They bring in
2: drugs, they bring in crime, and some I assume are good people. You're short. Shut your mouth for
0: The day after Donald Trump won the presidential election, I asked people on the streets of New York for their thoughts.
3: I'm afraid of
1: everything. My parents were immigrants. This is not a good time.
0: He's a funny guy, and he loves Russia. I love him. There's just a lot of expectations of what might happen to the Latinos, but there's no one above God.
3: We don't need to worry about other countries we need to worry about what's best for america
0: Uh, my family's from trinidad we do have illegal family members so you don't know if like one day you could just get like you know sent back to your country sometimes immigrants do jobs that legal people don't want to do so i find it unfair so like are you scared for your family they're all back in ireland yeah i'm scared for them because of like diabetes and stuff like that so those are feelings and those are real now, what about the numbers behind some of those fears? This is the part of the show where I talk stats with my best girl, Mona. Data, please.
3: Data, please. My name is Mona Chalaby, and I'm the data editor at Guardian US.
0: So, your numbers
3: facts. <laughs> I mean hopefully all journalists deal in facts. My main, my main job is to provide statistical context to stories if you like.
2: So with immigration you better be smart and you better be tough and they're taking your jobs and you better be careful.
0: So are immigrants actually taking away jobs from native-born Americans? The truth
2: is
3: actually a little bit complex there's data Mm -hmm. pointing in different directions it's not just about whether these jobs are going to immigrants it's like what other reasons are affecting the number of jobs in the economy Mm -hmm. and there's lots of other information that's worth keeping in mind there so a study at ball state university's Center for Business and Economic Research last year found that trade accounted for only 13% of America's lost factory jobs. That's the idea of like, you know, all of these
0: these jobs going to Mexico or whatever. But
3: actually 88% of the jobs were taken by robots and other homegrown factors that reduce factories' need for human labor.
0: And where do those robots come from? (laughs) (laughs) Who's giving those robots visas? (laughs) (laughs) Now let's move on to another charge that Trump campaigned on.
2: But we have some bad hombres here and we're going to get them out.
0: Right, so what about this notion that there is a criminal element among immigrants? So this comes from the Justice Quarterly. And it
3: shows that the native-born population and the second generation of immigrants have almost identical crime patterns, right? And when I say crime patterns, I just mean the likelihood of having committed at least one crime in the last 12 months. The likelihood is basically the same for second generation immigrants and the native-born population. But for first generation immigrants, it's markedly lower. So a native-born 16-year-old, the likelihood that they would have committed a crime in the past 12 months is 25%. For the first-generation immigrants, it's about 17%. That's that's significant, you know?
0: Now, I think, listeners, that you might have noticed that I'm not from here and neither is Mona. So I asked her, how does she personally feel about immigration right now as an immigrant herself?
3: Not great. Really? Yeah, really, really not great. And I'm not yeah. comparing myself to, like a a labourer who has come here from like a, a, a country with extreme poverty right i realize i have like yeah. masses of amounts of privilege at the same time britain right now is not a particularly hospitable place to like a brown woman like me either like i mm. don't really feel comfortable going back there i don't mm. know how do you feel mate
0: i got that too It was like oh so now are you gonna go back to ireland did anyone actually ask you that yeah, I got like texts from an ex-boyfriend and stuff oh. <laughs> with like that smoke sign that means you're gone and a shamrock. <laughs> oh my God. I know. Great guy. Um, okay. We're going to talk to you every week. Thank you so much for your input. Is that okay that Are we talk really? to you every week?
3: Yeah, that's great.
0: <laughs> now, on with this week's episode and our very first guest. Meet Rosalind Koo standing at 4 foot 10 inches tall, touching 90 years old. Steel grey bouffant hairdo. Seems strict, but there's a twinkle in her eye. Three weeks ago, Roslyn could be found advising a dining hall full of Chinese-American senior citizens on the propositions coming up on the California ballot. So,
2: 64 is about uh, legally uh, used marijuana, so uh, it's What's
1: up my to... What's your... oh, oh, uh, This is your personal choice.
2: So it's up to you. A lot of uh, young people say yes, uh, most of the seniors
0: says no. I actually stayed with Rosalind in her dreamy retirement home in San Mateo in California. Um, picture the fanciest hotel you've ever seen. Marble tabletops, fresh flowers, gold pillars, and now fill it with lots of smiling people who are like not on their phones. They're just like moving around nice and slowly. And that was it. When my taxi from the airport pulled up, Roz was waiting for me, outside in the sunshine, dressed head to toe oh, yeah, in uniclo. She is the coolest. This
3: lady is from Japan?
0: No, this lady is not, not from Japan. No, really?
1: I have to that. You want me to say it now? Yeah. I was born in Shanghai. Uh, I have been in this country mm. since 1947. So you do the math. How many years have I been <laughs>
0: I did the maths and she's been here 108 years. No, wait, 45 years? This is why I shouldn't do maths on the, okay. 69, yes. She has been in the US for 69 years, all due to a series of exceptional circumstances and a quirk in immigration history that granted her US citizenship. Chinese immigrants had been specifically barred from entering the US for decades before Roz got here. So her story is one of amazing timing. But it's also one of finding a home under extraordinary circumstances. Moving from place to place, only to realize that perhaps it's not a place you're even looking for, but a purpose.
1: I grew up in Shanghai and left after, right after high school graduation. Mm-hmm. And the rest of the time, I live in the United States. But during the, my residency in the United States, I went back to China 37 times first to look for my relatives, to do sightseeing, but later on, really, to do uh, a couple of projects.
0: A couple of projects? Hmm. Now, Roz could be referring to the time she built a huge housing structure for poverty-stricken seniors in San Francisco, or led a gang of protesting pensioners around City Hall to secure a centre for the elderly. But wait, didn't she say a couple of projects in China? Right, so maybe she meant the time she educated over 1,000 rural girls, or the time she built a school in the Sichuan province after the 2008 earthquake. Or, yes, you get it, Roz has been busy. And it all began with her childhood in war-torn China, a period of fermenting angst for our future activists.
1: Yeah, so when I was, uh, uh, when I was fourth grade, uh, the the. Japanese militaries absolutely invaded and occupied people in my area. And the f- infamous uh, Nanking Massacre happened there.
0: The Second Sino-Japanese War began in 1937 and led directly into World War II.
1: On the street, in you know, constantly, uh, the political turmoil uh, happening and so it's a period of great anxiety for for me. I mean, kids can feel it. They may not understand it. I was only 10 years old.
0: So you went from Shanghai. Who, who went with you and what was your journey?
1: So the four of us, three kids and my mom, and there was an escort who would take us into the interior. I remember uh, in the inn, um, we, we had to uh, rest for the night, and the sheet was bloody uh, from wounded soldiers. And for, <laughs> for me, it's uh, really freaky. <coughs> we also brought in a maid. A maid went with us, but the maid died of uh, acute appendicitis in, in Chongqing. And so one day I came home, uh, there was a, a, a coughing, and,
0: oh, no. and the maid. Because there was no hospital? No, none.
1: Nothing was familiar. And the dialect was totally different. Chongqing, it was a very primitive area at that time. No electricity, we used candles. And they have rats big rats, and scare me to death.
0: (laughs) It sounds like New York City.
1: (laughs) You're right.
0: Chongqing was a shocking contrast to Roz's previous life of privilege in Shanghai. After a year there, the family returned, and Roz went back to her prestigious Methodist school, the MacTier Girls' School.
1: The Methodist missionaries didn't press us on religion. Their emphasis is develop you as a whole person. We have a motto. It's called Live, Love and Grow.
0: She loved it there, but it was a difficult time with the war raging on outside and adolescence inside.
1: Well, I was very restless. I was a teenager, so I got into all kinds of mischief. or I almost got ex- expelled because I was disobedient <laughs> when I was 7th grade. I just walked into my mother's bedroom and made the proclamation, I shall go to the countryside and help the poor. And my mother said, go to school, study hard and learn how to pick up after yourself <laughs> first. <laughs> <laughs> what can you do? You don't even pick up after yourself.
0: Aww. I get that. I mean, I was lucky enough to have a really peaceful childhood in rural Ireland, but I was a restless teenager too. I'd go for these, like, long, furious walks through the fields and spend hours writing overly personal letters to political prisoners in East Timor. Yes, in English. But Rosalind's unease took a different form.
1: Protesting with my family and saying, you are all decadent. I will have nothing to do with you. You know, like a teenager here, bursting. My father said, where did I go wrong with you? I said, you don't understand me. Yeah. (laughs) And why are you treating me as a second-class citizen? For instance, uh, my brother get a C. He he got punished. I got an A. He said, don't study so hard. I just hit the ceiling. <laughs> I said, you see? You see? <laughs> That's not what I want. You're not treating me as equal.
0: Can you describe to me what it was that you were against, like mm-hmm. acting against the... Position of women?
1: Um, my father was educated at Harvard. I s- consider him very old fashioned, meaning what they will choose my boyfriend. And it has to come from a equally prominent family. And even dating, not that I care for boys <laughs> at that time, I said, I want to be like them. Why do I have to be like a girl? (laughs) I wanted to be a boy.
0: (laughs) Teenage boys just had more freedom than teenage girls did when I was growing up. Freedom to do whatever, play music, be funny, grow mustaches. But it was harder for girls, except for the mustache. That's actually really easy for me. But being a girl in the 1940s, stuck at home, Roz wanted out. Beijing University was her dream escape.
1: And I said to my mom, said, okay, I'm ready to go. And then she said, you cannot go. You'll become a, a radical. Because I, I was so radical in my thinking.
0: So where did you go?
1: Okay, so compromise. I want to leave home. They won't let me go. So I came abroad. I came on board a troop ship. See, see, it, it was right after the Second World War. I came out in 47. Uh, and then uh, at that time, no airplane, only ships. It took 16 days.
0: You came to America?
1: Yeah. My brother and my father applied for me. And before I knew it, I was at Mills College, <laughs> all girls college, called Mills College.
0: So that wasn't your choice? No. 1947, and our disappointed heroine arrives in Northern California to begin her studies at Mills College, a prestigious all-women's university in Oakland, California. But it felt to her more like a finishing school.
1: I was a French major because I had enough French, and I could just coast, do nothing, and eat ice cream and Hollywood movie.
0: <laughs> and with college such a breeze, Roz started looking around for her next challenge.
1: How do you find boys here? <laughs>
0: <laughs> the eternal question, how do you find boys? It's tricky. Where do the little fellows hide, hmm? I see them all the time, in Dunkin' Donuts, in tattoo parlors, in motorbike shops. But how do you talk to them? There was no Tinder in the 1940s. But like the extraordinary community organizer that she would later become, Roz came up with a game plan. She rallied her girlfriends around.
1: And say, okay, you find one boy, and you ask the boy whether he has other friends he could bring in. (laughs) And then, especially if they have car, that means we could go to San Francisco.
0: (laughs) And it worked. One year into college, she met the man who would become her husband.
1: On Market Street, and he saw me go into the restaurant. Well, it's a bone of contention. Who saw whom first?
0: (laughs) (laughs) They married just over two years later, in 1950.
1: And stay married for 50 years.
0: (laughs) Wow.
1: Raised two kids.
0: But even as she was finding love in America, civil war was tearing China apart. Mao and his army established communist China, and Chiang Kai-shek and about 2 million Chinese nationalists fled for Taiwan. Roz's family was among them. As Christian, wealthy progressives... It was too dangerous for them to return to China.
1: And decided my husband and I will establish the first generation here.
0: They were actually among the very few Chinese people able to stay in America under something called the Displaced Persons Act. I had actually never heard of this, but lucky for me, I've got a full deck of context queens to call whenever things need clearing up. Here's our first context queen with some helpful background.
2: So my name is Erica Lee, and I teach immigration history at the University of Minnesota. The Displaced Persons Act marks this in-between stage of the United States uh, moving from a period of great immigration restriction towards a slightly open door. It was specifically designed to help Uh, victims who had been persecuted by the Nazi government, but it's also a public relations campaign to demonstrate how so many people were fleeing from communist countries to come to the United States in the emerging Cold War. So that would explain why some people from China qualified, right? Yes, it doesn't um, explicitly um, allow for Asian refugees, but it does allow for those who are already in the United States um, to adjust their status. So this would include students as well as officials. But uh, the, the people who did apply did need to pass what some might call today extreme vetting. As students, Roz and her husband qualified
0: for citizenship under the Act, highly unusual for two Chinese immigrants at the time, because for decades before that, Chinese people were actively banned.
2: The, the Chinese Exclusion Act was passed in 1882. It's the first time that the United States bars an entire group based on race and class. It sets in motion uh, so many dramatic changes in immigration law that we still live with today. The origins of um, immigration officials, detention practices, green cards, uh, it also set in motion the closing of doors to all subsequent Asian immigrant groups so that by the 1930s, Japanese, Korean, South Asians, Filipinos are all exclusively barred from the United States. Considering
0: how many white people from Europe were flooding into the US from the 1880s to the 1930s without any such restrictions, my clever detective brain couldn't help suspecting some kind of racism at work. Could it be that immigration policy is sometimes
2: race-based, even here in the land of the free? Surely not. It clearly um, has a racial component and it also has a class component. So the Exclusion Act explicitly bars Chinese laborers. Chinese immigrants are seen as undercutting uh, the wages They're automatically slotted along the lines with African-Americans and American Indians as inferior peoples, not worthy of American citizenship. I asked
0: Professor Lee about how this law ended and she told me that basically, it's sort of like, you know, you break up with someone and you're really mean to them, but then there's a huge spider in your bathroom and you're terrified and you call them up and you need them really bad and then you ask them back. Those were not exactly her words. What she told me was that World War II happened And suddenly the U.S. really needed
2: China. It is highly hypocritical of the United States to turn to China and say, you are now our ally, but we just don't want your people to come to the United States. (laughs) You know, so it's um, Franklin Roosevelt says we made a historic mistake and then we're going to repeal the exclusion laws. But China's quota was actually only 105 persons a year. So yes, we get rid of this law, but America is still essentially, you know, closed to most Chinese immigrants. Thank you so much for that. You're welcome.
0: So back to Roz, exceptional as one of the less than 4000 Chinese people allowed to stay here because of that tiny crack in a historical window. Cut off from China, both forced to and lucky enough to make the U.S. her home, Roz didn't dwell on it for too long. She just got to work.
1: When I got married, I decided I really would have to be very serious about our lives. I wanted to become part of the community or society. And staying home just wasn't going to do it.
0: So let's speed right up the way I imagine real life does when you're working hard, moving up in your career, being a parent, gradually becoming an absolute boss. Roz got her first job as a telephone receptionist at a nonprofit.
1: I didn't realize that people can be so rude.
0: Moved on to pick up skills as a legal secretary, then departmental administrator.
1: You know, to me, it's on the job learning.
0: And she did it all with style.
1: I was in my Chinese dress, <laughs> high heels, Chinese dress.
0: Before finally landing at a struggling architecture firm in San Francisco.
1: The office is strategically located. I could just see all the, all the amenities, for, <laughs> and all the restaurants, all my <laughs> friends on Montgomery Street. <laughs> and so I said, I'll fix it for you. Whatever it is, I'll fix it for you.
0: And she did fix it. She worked to make it one of the 500 fastest-growing firms in the country in spite of an overall industry dip. Roz was made partner within three years and served her time as chief financial officer for 18.
1: From a lowly office manager and having a male staff coming to me and say, you got no business taking the job away from a man who needs to support family.
0: Who said that to you?
1: All those days, people do that he will be the one to go one day.
0: (laughs) Despite the odds, being a woman, a woman of colour, an immigrant, a working mother, Roz made it. But like so many women of her generation, casual workplace sexism was the norm. At home though, not so much. Can you tell us about your husband? Carson,
1: he was a very gentle soul and very caring about uh, the daughter. And he could bathe the baby. Much better than I. (laughs) Mm -hmm. He would uh, select cosmetics for them, starting from age 13.
0: Did he ever help you with your look?
1: And I said, I need a raincoat. Mm -hmm. So he would go and get me a raincoat. (laughs) (laughs) I need a purse. I need a brown purse. (laughs) Then he he went, he loves to do that. Here in the United States, we make our own rules. If he felt strongly about something, yeah. I supported him and vice versa. But in most cases, he supported me.
0: Ros never remarried after Carlson passed away in 2000. Can I ask your advice about how sure. to find such a good husband? Well, it took me
1: two and a half years to psych him out.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, I try... try watching him dealing with animals is he kind to the animals (laughs) starting okay and dogs and cats
0: i love that idea so maybe a good recommendation if you're wondering if you should marry somebody is get somehow get a kitten near them You're listening to Maeve in America. My guest today is Rosalind Koo, a.k.a. Roz, a.k.a. legendary member of the Chinese community. We've heard about her childhood in occupied Shanghai, her years as a business executive, all of which lay the groundwork for a dream that she'd had since childhood and the reason she took early retirement. Roz threw herself into online gaming, playing Diablo 3 for hours on end in her darkened living room. No, she didn't. Oh, of course she didn't. We're dealing with Roz here. Remember Roz's early childhood dream to go and help the poor? Well, when she finally got to go back to her beloved MacTier School for Girls, 30 years later, in 1977, she got her opportunity.
1: Uh, it's total devastation
0: mm-hmm.
1: because they just came out of the Cultural Revolution and and just... Yeah, it's, the spirit was broken.
0: All that time Roz was living her life in California, China had undergone Mao's cultural revolution, a time when over a million people were killed and schools and universities were shut down and teachers humiliated.
1: Trees dead, flowers dead, uh, doors off hinge, and no one study.
0: Was anybody there that you knew?
1: Uh, I was... Uh, given the opportunity of visiting my principal.
0: She was uh, she was there 30 years later. She made she it through. She was there,
1: and she was so worn out, white hair and bent back. She and I, we walk on the campus, mm-hmm. and I said, how could this happen? And she, she shushed me. She said, well, we are okay now. Mm-hmm. They said, okay now.
0: Roz couldn't stop thinking about her old principal and ways that she could help out. She returned the following year.
1: I said, what do you need? You want a science building? I will equip the building.
0: And is the school still running today?
1: Oh wow, better, better than before. Really? Oh yeah, they build new buildings and our old buildings have become a registered landmark. Really? Oh, oh yes. I said, Good thing you did not expect. Now I can do things for you.
0: (laughs) Because once she started helping people, she couldn't stop. She was so, so ready.
1: In hindsight, my 30 years of working really prepared me for the next 30 years. Because the skills I gained, financial, uh, about people, about defeat. How do you deal?
0: Can you tell us, How to be an activist when you're in your late 80s?
1: Well, because I have the time and the experience and I get angry. In the younger days, I'm concerned about my job and, and, you know, did I offend? But in my old age, it doesn't matter.
0: I often feel angry about the way people are treated, but I feel helpless to do anything about this. You pick
1: your battle. Some, some you just let it go. So you, you get rid of a lot of stuff that crowds your brain and you focus. I'm interested in social justice. So when you abuse uh, someone who's uh, vulnerable, then I, I get mad. <laughs> when I get mad, you don't want to come near me. <laughs> and I don't have time to waste.
0: And if charity begins at home? Well, she went all in back in San Francisco.
1: I started my involvement with Self-Help for the Elderly, which is an elder care agency for low-income seniors.
0: Self-Help for the Elderly was originally created as one of President Lyndon Johnson's War on Poverty programs. And many of the impoverished Americans self-help served lived in Chinatown.
1: Chinatown is uh, six square blocks at that time. and the poor seniors live in basement or live in top floor and couldn't walk down. And your room is 9 by 11. And one bed in the room, ceiling coming off because of leaks.
0: Hello? Hello, Doctor. It's Maeve Higgins. How are you? I'm good. How are you? That's Min Jiao, sociologist at UCLA and our second context queen – This lady literally wrote the book on Chinatown and I was excited to talk to her, possibly too excited. One of my first visits to New York, one of my favourite things to do was walk through Chinatown. And it felt so special to me and it felt like the closest I could get to actually visiting China, which I've never visited.
2: So it's interesting that, that you you feel you, you went to China when you arrived in Chinatown. But when I arrived in Chinatown, I felt that it wasn't China at all. It was like something I saw in the movie set, in the movie, <laughs> like in the 1920s. I just want to
0: mark the kindness of Professor Zhou in not totally taking me to pieces for my exoticizing eyes. Ugh! yikes. Another myth Professor Zhou is keen to dispel is that Chinatown is a ghetto.
2: The immigrants, they move into Chinatown and gradually they move out. Uh, so so I, I didn't see Chinatown as a ghetto at all. I thought mm, Chinatown may be a mobility engine to move um, the new immigrants into uh, their new homeland.
0: That said, not every immigrant is able to harness this mobility engine and inevitably some will be left behind. These are the people that Roz Ku came across in San Francisco's Chinatown, the elderly and the poor.
1: And so when the, when the federal government gave them the money to build a multi-unit project, I said, I can do that. <laughs> you know, yeah. what's so difficult about this?
0: But things got real hard, real fast.
1: First, you have to have approval from the board of supervisors. And I was shot down. Within minutes, I didn't even know what hit me.
0: At the same time, there was opposition from the community.
1: It's a Caucasian, very politically connected, wealthy, and lives in a a marvelous view. You, You devalue my property, okay? And it's not just Caucasians, Chinese also uh, living in the wealthy neighborhood say, you are blocking my view. Actually, we are not blocking. But just the idea of Chinatown, little old lady with a bag and wearing a knitted cap is shame on their neighborhood. And they say, you must go back to Chinatown. You cannot be here.
0: But the R in Roz stands for resilient. I mean, it obviously stands for Roz too, but you know what I'm saying. She took them all on, the community, the local government, and she fought for her seniors.
1: And I was so angry. And I said, lady, I'm going to outlast you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And six years later, she'd built it, a stunning building that's home now to over 70 low-income elderly.
1: Yeah, I won the... Uh, California Council of the American Institute Urban Design.
0: Congratulations. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I visited the San Mateo Self Help Center with Roz on a rainy afternoon, just 10 days before the presidential election. That's where you heard Roz explaining the propositions at the top of the show. This place is gorgeous. It's set in a beautiful garden, there's a pond full of koi fish. And by that, I mean fish that were very, very shy. Oh, and there was dancing in the centre. A lot of dancing, specifically crunking and twerking. No, sorry. I mean, jitterbugging. There was jitterbugging.
2: There's one cat you want, you know, every place you go.
0: I'm John Horan. I'm Ellen J. Let's see, we just found you dancing in the room. Is this something you do together regularly? What's the every
3: every Thursday morning they have a class.
0: Yes.
2: The center is my place to to all the activities. I'm Chinese American. I come came from Hong Kong. Uh, Twenty when? years ago. Twenty one years ago. Twenty one years ago. Yeah.
1: I'm Irish Welsh. Irish Welsh. Wow. That's <laughs> an unusual combination. <laughs> I'm eighty two.
0: And how did you get involved with the center?
1: My son uh, was, had, has had a severe disability. So we hired a lot of attendants, and this was at the time of Tiananmen Square, okay? So there were a lot of illegal Chinese here at that time, and they were so good to my son. So when he was dying, he said to me, uh, do something nice for the Chinese. So I volunteer here, I get money here, and and so on and so forth. I'm here
3: often, yeah.
0: Yep, I am currently pitching a 24-part series about John and Ellen, the two jitterbugging friends. Actually, there is a super cute video of them dancing on my Instagram, at mavenamerica, so have a look at that. But don't steal my idea. I also spoke to some ladies. One was in an apron, one was in a blazer, and they were gathered in the dining hall, ballots in hand, to listen to Roz. It's your first time voting
2: in any election?
0: It's yeah. Congratulations. Yeah, thank
2: you. <laughs> thank you. If I didn't come over here, I wouldn't have, uh, have a chance to vote. Uh, it's only because coming here, uh, people tell you about this, so I start thinking about it. And besides, I don't uh, read English, so it's hard for me. So, But over here, there are people helping you out.
1: And the power of the vote can be a very positive thing. It isn't always protest. Power of the vote is give our representatives, a sense of what it is that we could do for, for the city. I say, library, you want, to, you want me to help you uh, raise money? I'll do it one night. 250000 I can do. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you sound like Kanye West. Roz is an advocate for a wide range of causes outside of the Chinese-American community too. To this day, she contributes to environmental sustainability projects, and when I visited her, she was reviving a music club for kids. And she's won multiple awards for her other community service. Do you feel like that was what you wanted to achieve? Did you know? Going to the countryside to help
1: the poor. (laughs) I still don't know how to pick up after myself, (laughs) but no matter. (laughs)
0: Before we parted ways, I wanted to know how Roz defined herself. How we identify ourselves as immigrants is a huge part of figuring out where we fit in, both back where we were born and here where our lives are. I asked her, does she feel Chinese, American, Chinese American?
1: I I feel very good about myself, by the way.
0: (laughs) Of course you do. I wish I was you. Yeah,
1: I said I have a host country and a home country, correct? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In the olden days, I feel strange, imbalanced. Now, I I can move in and out. You know, I'll go to Shanghai, and I feel at home, and U.S. seems so remote. (laughs) And then I come back here, and then I say, here is my home. Then I deal with the. Seniors who speak different dialects and celebrate all these festivals of China, China. Mm-hmm. and I, I said this is the same world.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it seems like your home country and your host country—they change, they, emerge. they, em- they yeah. merge,
1: yeah, into one one place. <laughs>
0: Well, that's it. Our first show. Thank you for listening. We've got a great season ahead, including a second helping of Maven America coming later this week. It's a special episode for Thanksgiving, the most American holiday of them all.
3: Thanksgiving is the only time of the year where you and total strangers will just talk about food you're going to eat. You know what I mean? Like, you don't normally just talk about, like, like the different ways you can make sweet potatoes sweet.
0: Dave in America is a joint production of Pretty Good Friends and First Look Media. This episode was produced by Stephanie Tam, with help from Liz Coe, Julie smith Clem, Erica Romero, Matt Chilts, Shani Avarum, and Pat Masidi miller who wrote our theme music. This show was engineered by Ted Muldoon, with music by Sending Letters to the Sea and This Is How We Fly. Huge thanks to Tal Mollad and all the First Look Media team. Subscribe to the podcast and come visit us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram at Maven America, where you'll find tons of photos of and information about our contributors and guests. And can you do me a favor? Please send this show to someone you think might not normally get to hear it. That's it. Thank you so much for listening. More to come later in the week. Is there anything that you would like to add that we have missed? No,
1: (laughs) I'm not done yet.
0: (laughs) What are you planning? You know what? I want your next project to be my life.